here. So I have a couple questions for you just to get a lay even of this, but then even anyone uh, joining on, on um, live stream, I want to ask this question. Uh, and if you would just raise your hand if you're in here so I could, I could see. How many of you would understand yourselves to have been converted while you were in a quote-unquote student ministry? Okay. All right, second question. Um, how many of you would understand your calling to ministry to have come when you were in a student ministry? Okay, so more. Um, okay. All right, that's really helpful. Um, so let me, after the two questions, let me start off with two um, potentially controversial statements. I hope they're not too controversial, but I just want us to think biblically about student ministry, what it is, its nature, uh, in, insofar as it exists now, and then how that coalesces with the local church. So here are the, here are the statements. Um, I do not think that most churches and student ministries or student pastors, you could include that in there. I do not think that most churches and student ministries think very scripturally about the relationship between student ministry and the local church. So I, don't, I don't, by and large, I don't think that's true. When you, when you just look at the landscape of American evangelicalism, even Baptist churches, uh, I don't think that we're thinking what is scriptural faithfulness and student ministry? I just don't think that comes about that much in people's thinking. Second statement, I do not think that most churches and student ministries, again, lump student pastors in there, I do not think that most student, uh, churches and student ministries know where to locate themselves in the Bible. Like, what's your charter, if you will? Or, or what, what's your reason for existing? Where would you go in the Bible or what places would you go to say, that's why this is appropriate, fine, and pleasing to the Lord? So why do I say that? Why do I start with those two thoughts? Um, and then why do I start with those two questions is even by you raising your hand, you're saying, man, student ministry has played a role in my life. Some of you were converted while under uh, or during student ministry era time in your life. And then also many of you, even more, were you would understand your calling to ministry, whatever that is, missions, what have you, to have come during that time. And so we need to think thoughtfully, biblically, about what a student ministry is and see if we can bring it under the auspices of the Bible, right? That's what we are. We're a Bible people here. Um, so this is where we're, we're going. Uh, I have three different phases, if you will, of, of the talk, and this is much more a lecture, uh, not to over-dignify or under-dignify uh, student ministry. It's much more lecture-like than it is sermon, just, just for everyone. So I want to raise a problem that I see in student ministry, and then I want to offer a proposal, and then I want to give a uh, a pop quiz, and that will be on, on baptism. So what is the problem? What is a student ministry? And what is a student pastor? That's the problem. I don't think we answer that question very well. And then the proposal, what a student ministry is according to scripture. So I'm going to try to outline that. And then um, the pop quiz is what do you do with, with baptism? This is kind of a collision point in student ministries often. So let's start with the problem first. What is a student ministry? And what is a student pastor? If you ransack the scriptures in pursuit of locating something akin to the qualifications of your local student pastor or a student ministry, you will not find it. I don't know if you know this or not, um, but it doesn't exist. So we could probably just turn the, the screens off and uh, just close up shop. I mean, 
Everyone in TV land, you've lost your jobs. It doesn't exist biblically. Um, all of you getting your call to ministry, you're in jeopardy now because your student ministry should have never existed. It never shows up in scripture, okay? So uh, just to make it worse before we fix this, it gets even more confusing when we think about someone saying student pastor or youth pastor, but then beyond that, you have what's called like a student minister, you have a student director, and so the problem gets thicker when you try to assess that. What do we do with all these varying manifestations of student ministry and how they operate in particularly in North America, in the US? So let's just hold on for a second. I think I can save your job uh, for you student pastors out there. Um, your title, scripturally speaking, has everything to do with your local church governance is what I'm gonna propose, but it's also unveiling the problem. So local church governance in the sense of, is there a plurality of pastors? Um, is this elder ruled? Is it elder led? Is it congregationally ruled? All of those are massively important as you're trying to discern and locate what a student pastor is, what your responsibility biblically before the Lord is, and what this unique thing is that we call student ministry. So as a student pastor or a director or a minister, where do you find yourself on the pages of scripture? Um, where do you find your scriptural grounding, your authority, and your fuel even for carrying out student ministry? Um, I'm gonna propose a couple different things. Let's, let's address the first question. What is a student pastor? This is again in the problem. What is a student pastor? What's a student minister? What's a student director? If you are not recognized as a uh, are called by your church as a pastor or as a shepherd, and I mean that first and foremost in the First Timothy 3, 1 through 7 sense, then you'll find your place doing student director or student minister ministry as a gifted teacher, as a disciple maker, and as a church member. So that's where you would locate yourself in scripture. And maybe your church has set you aside to be um, maybe even paid, your student director, what have you, but they've set you aside to do that work of the ministry among this age group, and that's where you would locate yourself in Scripture. You're a gifted teacher that the church has set aside to do that. You're a disciple maker, and you are a church member. You're accountable, and you're gifted in those ways. So where do I get the gifted teacher? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it says, God has appointed teachers in the local church. He, he gives them as gifts to the local church, and that's not only pastors, but rather all, uh, many in the local church have the gift of, of teaching. Well, what about disciple maker? Well, we all know Matthew 28, 19. But I want to say, notice that Matthew 28, we often uncouple it from its ecclesial or its church context, which is found in 18, chapter 18 or verse 15. I, I think what he's saying in 28, Jesus, is, is he's assuming a church context. You don't have just random disciples running around in the universe, right? But they're actually baptized into a local church and they're disciple makers. And so they become disciples and then they make disciples. So if you're a youth director or a, or a youth minister, that's what you're doing. You're discipling people um, as a disciple. You're a church member. And then what about church member? There's a number of places we could go here, but uh, Colossians 4, 5 gives this indication between the outside and the inside of a church, right? Those who are known to be inside a church, those who are outside of a church. And so we're recognizing that we don't want to um, conflate this 
formal role as a pastor with that of a church member, and then what does a student minister or director come in there? That, that's where you would locate yourself. I'm, I'm going to be a God-given, gifted person to this local church, and they've set me aside to help with this age group that's 12 to 19 or so, okay? So you're a disciple maker, and, and that's where you find your fuel and your authority. But there's this other group called student pastor. So student pastor. If you're recognized by your church as a pastor and you also carry the title of student pastor, well, I would want to say that the student part is secondary to the pastor piece. We, we have the most formal sense of understanding that that's a pastor. So if there's someone uh, listening that's called a student pastor, then you ought to be fitting the qualifications of Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. That's just, to me, on the surface, obvious but at the same time, I think it's appropriate and fine to say, hey, we've also set this person aside to oversee this area of our church, this age range uh, ministry of sorts. And so where are you gonna first be called and get your authority and your fuel? It's because you're a pastor and you bring that authority as well, which is dis- different than a minister or, or a director of some sort. So second, that's, that's what you do with what's a director, uh, a youth minister, how are you getting biblical thoughts on this? Um, and, and then what, what is a pastor, uh, a student pastor? Well, secondly, what's a student ministry? What even is that, biblically speaking? What is this strange animal? Um, so biblically speaking, I want to propose that it is much more like small groups or a Sunday school, Awanas, or even choir, or something like that. So why would I say that? Well, it's because it's, it's supplemental. It's not integral. Um, if you have... Uh, a Sunday school, or you don't have a Sunday school, you still can have a very healthy church. I'm not saying that you don't have, have to have other ways of um, teaching your congregation and performing the one another's and discipling, but it's not like you have to have Sunday school. Well, just the same as youth ministry. It's a good way of doing it. There are particular things coming at teenagers, what we call teenagers in our culture, um, that, that could be helped by a student pastor and someone who's going to walk them through that. But it's not required biblically. You can have a healthy, faithful church without that. However, on the other hand, what I'm, I mean by integral, if you don't have pastors in your church, you need to fix that, right? That's like, that's integral. It's, it's designed in, baked into the local church. If you don't sing on Sunday morning, you're irregular. That, you're supposed to sing. It's prescribed. You're supposed to pray. You're supposed to preach. These are things that we don't, we're not optional here. But student ministry, insofar as it exists, it's, um, it's in a sense optional. But you can locate yourself and say, okay, gifted teachers, do they have places to actually teach? Is this coming under the authority of the local church and the pastors? Yes. Okay, then go for it. Green light. If it's not, it's not necessary. It's not required. It's not biblically prescribed. So this first problem that I'm raising, if you ransack the New Testament in particular, I find that student ministry is supplemental. It's not integral or prescribed. What is prescribed is teaching, discipling, and exercising what Paul often refers to as the one another's. Like, how are you going to carry that out? It's going to be carried out all kinds of ways. Mercy ministries, all these sorts of things, maybe choir, Awanas, VBS, whatever. If those things are helping and aiding, then great. If they're getting in the way, then they need to, they need to come into the alignment with the, with the local church. 
So I find student ministry to be fine and fitting. Uh, and it's a great plowman in, in the kingdom. Um, and, and if it's used well, then it, it will go well. But when we deviate from this teaching discipling function, that's when you get the wild, wild west scenario in student, student ministries where it's just game centric and kind of attractional. And it becomes, what even is this anymore? Which is what, in many ways, Student, student Pastor Summit was started to say, hey, you don't have to go that direction. That may be the direction that a lot of student ministry stuff goes, but I would discourage that. You want to be about the eternal things, and so you want to think very scripturally about what student ministry is, um, how does it fit. All right, so here's my proposal, second portion. Proposal, what student ministry is according to scripture, or that's what I want to argue anyways. Because student ministry is supplemental and not scripturally essential, where do we find our grounds for establishing and utilizing it? Like, again, why why do we do that? And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to read a large section of of text. And before we read it, I want to just say, I'm going to bracket out the conversation that will immediately come to your mind, which is over tongues and prophecy. I I, I leave it to other uh, able um, folk to to address that. You You can read Sam Storms or Wayne Grudem or Tom Schreiner for the correct view, okay? Um, So I'm not gonna address that, is my point. What what I want, I want you to see something different in 1 Corinthians 14, and we're gonna read 14, verses four through 31. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in in other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret for if, he, if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the spirit, and I will sing, also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with, your, with the spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For, if, for you may very well be, uh, be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak the other tongue, in other tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. 
Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues then is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that they are out of their minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secret of his heart will be revealed. And as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming God is really among you. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two, or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the the first prophet should be silent. For you... For you can also prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. Did you notice how beyond uh, the, the risen issue, which seems to be prophecy tongue and then just orderly nature of the assembled congregation seemingly on the Lord's day, right? Did you notice the focus, just laser focus of Paul on this upbuilding idea? So I wanna actually look at it. Look at verse four. So he brings up the congregation over and over and over again. Everything needs to be subservient to the congregation. Look at verse four. At the end of the verse, it says, um, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Look at verse five at the end. Unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. Look at verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. What's the point of the gifts? It's to build up the church. Look at verse um, 17 towards the end. Well, we'll read the whole thing. For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. Look at verse um, 19 towards the end. It says, in order to teach others also. What's your teaching for? It's others focused. It's not about this this person. Uh, Look at verse 26 towards the end. Everything is to be done for building up. Look at verse 30, 31. For you can also prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. So your student ministry, I'm I'm just, I'm wanting to extrapolate this passage and say we can take a principle from this that everything in the local church is about the building up of the church. That's what deacons are for. That's what elders are for. That's what singing is for. It's that we would be made mature into Christ's image. That's the point. So then you just move from there to what in the world is student ministry? Well, it's supposed to be subservient. That's the point. So it serves the overall church. If it doesn't, then we have a problem. There's a problem here. Why? Because all is subservient to the upbuilding of the church in this passage and many others. What causes and allows for the greatest flourishing 
And, and corporate edification is what needs to be pursued. So Miss Bonnie at 83 is no less important or to be put aside than Jordan, young Jordan at 14. So what do you do with student ministry there? You, you want to make it come into alignment with the whole local church, that the whole church could be built up. It doesn't need to be siloed off and doing its own little thing, this weird like body inside a body, which is what commonly happens. So it should be an asset and in service to the overall discipleship and Great Commission focus of, of the church. It's for the upbuilding of the whole. And everything submits and coalesces with this idea of, of upbuilding. Turn to Colossians 3. I want to look at another passage. Why, why, do, we, why do I think that it's fine to, to keep rolling along with this idea of student ministry um, if it's not explicitly stated in the scriptures, why, why is that? Look at chapter 3, verse 12 and 16. We're going to read the whole section, but focus on 16. Therefore, as God's chosen, well, pause just a moment. This is when he makes that, uh, that Pauline pivot, right, where he's moving into imperatives. So gospel, 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 gospel transformation, and then therefore, right? So this is that therefore passage, put off these things, put on these things. Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with uh, gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So recognize that this is a congregational reading. This is coming to the whole church. And it's um, how do we apply this passage? Well, look at verse 16. Um, we're to make the scriptures radiate from every nook and cranny of our churches. It's supposed to obviously rule our churches, but I, I think what he's talking about here is let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Is it, it needs to be lavish. Is the, is the heartbeat of your church um, just, I love the word. And if that's the case, again, then you just move over to student ministry and you say, of course, that's fine. Of course, we want the word of Christ dwelling richly among us. Can we do student ministry? Of course we can. We want the word of Christ dwelling richly among us, every nook and cranny of the church. You're like, you know, trying to get the, the babies who can't speak to memorize scripture. So of course, it's fine to do student ministry, and to do, but it needs to be ruled and, and just lavished on with the word. So it's not about Nintendo 64 kids. That was a joke, guys. Like, in, I think Nintendo 64 was like 20 years ago. I'm not certain, but here we are. So it, it's fine. We want that. We want that to happen. Y'all gave me no love on that. All right, here we are. Uh, look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. So back a couple pages. It's just more of this same idea. W what is it? Um, what can we locate ourselves student ministry-wise in the scriptures? Verse, chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping 
the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So this sense of gifted teachers are going to get to exercise their gifting in student ministries, so it is, of course, a benefit to the body. It is, of course, a benefit to this local church um, that you're called to as a, as a teacher, as a disciple maker, and maybe even as a, as a student pastor. So teachers are, are given to local churches, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So pastors bear a heavy load in that, and rightfully so, but then also God has kindly given gifted teachers that will find their work um, and their way in student ministry as well. So student ministry, if it is anything, it exists for the church, right? We're reading that, we're seeing that. It's not just Dr. Dr. Allen and his brilliance, though he's very proud of me right now for saying it, right? But it's actually textual. Student ministry is for the upbuilding of the church if it exists at all. And we're thankful that it does. God's been kind to us in that. All right, so here's your pop quiz and where it gets kind of gritty. What do you do with baptism? So this is like the collision, student ministries, it becomes like this theological wild, wild west and and clown town scenario when it's just like all games and, and attractional stuff. But when you get down to the Bible and what do you do with these eternal things that God has given us, these ordinances, Lord's Supper, baptism, what do you do? I mean, what, what do we do? So it's a good litmus test, a good pop quiz for um, where your student ministry is. How, how healthy is it? Well, when a student is baptized, um, he or, and, and student is just a moniker, right? I mean, it, it, this is a Christian. He or she is baptized into the local church, not into a student ministry, which Sadly, when I'm out and about, I see that constantly. Even if it's not talked about like that, functionally it works that way. They're, they're like baptized into the student ministry instead of the local church. So we know that's not good. I mean, this is this subservient thing that, that's uh, usurping the, the integral thing, the, the upbuilding of the local church. So do you, do you act like that? Um, do you act like this student ministry is, is a body within a body? Um, because you shouldn't. So baptism should be pastorally discerned then, pastorally led. It's not um, youth ministry driven per se. So if you're a student pastor, it makes sense. Uh, if you're listening, you're a student pastor, it makes sense that you'd see a teenager follow Christ. That's wonderful. We want to celebrate that. And they would want to desire uh, and, and move forward with baptism and membership. That's a good thing. Um, however, you do want to submit and lean heavy on those pastors who are going to give an account for, for their ministry. It's not, it's not out of alignment with, with that. You want to bring it into alignment. So we don't just baptize someone, you know, willy-nilly. I mean, in, in the Beerig household, we're hardcore about our catechism. And Levi's three years old. He can do some serious catechism. He can tell me what the, the content of the gospel is. I do not know that he's a believer. We don't just kind of baptize incantation talk, right? So we want to see evidence that this person is walking with Christ, um, and we don't just baptize anyway. So that's why you come under this congregational rule that's led by the pastors. And so if you're a student minister, that means a certain thing. If you're a student pastor, that means another thing in many ways. So we want to walk by fear and with trembling before the Lord, for these are holy things. 
And if we've learned anything in the Southern Baptist Convention in the last 50 years, it's like baptism's a big deal. Membership is a big deal. Church discipline is a big deal. And we don't take them trivially. So the second thing would be that baptism should be congregationally affirmed. It ought to be congregationally affirmed. So it's pastorally led, it's congregationally affirmed. Ultimately, not just you, student pastor or student minister, um, it's not just you, but the whole church is responsible for this new disciple, this new church member. Not only responsible to see them in a one another sense, to, to watch over their maturation as a new believer, but even if need be, then they're responsible for discipline as well, whether that's on the formal or informal level. So walking them towards Christ, teaching them about how to repent from sin, that's a congregational task. It's not just in the student ministry. But then if they were to begin to while out in, in, many, in whatever way they pursue their sin and they break way with Jesus Christ and they want their sin more than they want Christ, there's no team B member in a local church. It's not like second tier members is like, oh, you're in the youth group. And so you're kind of like a member. I mean, biblically, I just don't see that. I don't see that it's defensible. So if they're coming forward to be baptized and they're going to get all of the rights and responsibilities and encouragement that comes with covenant membership, that, that's what ought to be taking place. As a student pastor, we want to walk then with fear and trembling in our post we will give an account for this. Uh, this is Hebrews 13, 17, right? Submit to your leaders as those who will give an account. We, we want to see students come to know the Lord. That is glorious and precious and normal. But there's a lot at stake. So, so the first commandment of Jesus is what? To be baptized. That's why this is such a big litmus test. So you want to see people follow Christ and you want to see them follow that command. However, that's also flanked by and balanced by that you and I as student pastors will give an account. We are barreling towards a moment that James 3.1 says, we, we, we are going to serve a higher uh, standard. And so we walk with, with a level of fear and understanding. These are eternal things. This isn't just, you know, someone gets dunked and you shoot off uh, the confetti bazooka. That, that's not, that, that's this weird Americanized Christianity. Baptism is parting with death, walking in life and saying, Christ is my all. And, and I will never take sin to be the thing anymore. And so if, if you deviate from that, then, then God's means is discipline. So baptism is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And it has this collision point with the local church and with student ministry often, and we, we need to take it seriously. In summary, the, the scriptural grounds, authority, and fuel uh, for student ministry, for student pastoring, is found in the New Testament mandate that, that churches ought to make disciples and utilize those gifted as teachers to do so. So that's where we find that. That's, that's the problem kind of raised, but then we find ourselves located in Scripture appropriately so. It's something like a small group or Sunday school. Um, it doesn't have to be in every church. We're thankful when it does appear, we can locate ourselves in Scripture. Secondly, student ministry, the student ministry of a church, because it's supplementary, ought to be ultimately in the service of the upbuilding of the whole church. If it's not, then something's gone awry and we need to change that. We want to see the flourishing of the whole church. There's, there's not this weird body within the body scenario. And then the third thing, baptism is a great testing ground for the health 
of your student ministry? How willing are you to submit to your Lord in Scripture? And how healthy is your church? How healthy is your uh, local, local church student ministry? And, and is it very, very biblical? Let me um, pray. We're going to uh, give a 15-minute break for those that are a part of Student Ministry uh, Summit. And um, let me pray us out. I appreciate everyone who's in chapel and you've endured. I, I pray that, um, yeah, you're, you're challenged to think biblically at least, even if you reject some of the things that I'm saying, you need to be thoughtful about how your church handles its student ministry and how that coalesces or doesn't um, with Scripture. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in not giving us the silent treatment. You have given us a word, and so we can trust that. We do have this thing called student ministry, and we want to celebrate that. We want to celebrate when 14-year-olds, 16-year-olds, whatever, come to know you and uh, they want to follow you and they are converted and they've crossed over the world, the flesh and the devil. We, we glory in that. But we also want to recognize that um, we have not handled this very well for the last 50 plus years in the rise of, of so-called student ministry. So we want to turn our hearts towards your lordship and we want to honor you with every activity that, that takes place in our local churches and so I pray that this would be a fruitful conversation, that it'd be challenging, um, that it'd be confirming for those who are trying to, to live out a faithful and biblical student ministry. And we thank you that um, you allow us a time of turning, that, that if this is not the way we've led our churches and our student ministries, that we can reconsider and we can adjust. Um, bless these students as they go on about their day uh, studying and, and, and coming towards uh, finals. In Jesus' name, amen.